Today on the show, I sit down with Richard Unger, the founder of the International Institute of Hand Analysis and also the author of the book Life Prints, Deciphering Your Life Purpose from Your Fingerprints. Thank you for continuing to support the podcast by rating and reviewing it and also sharing it with a friend. If you know someone that you think would benefit from the podcast, share it with them. And also you can contribute to the podcast with a donation by going to the storyofmepodcast.com and at the bottom of the website, there's a donate button and make a donation to help cover the expenses of the show. You can also go to the storyofmepodcast.com to submit your own questions to be answered on the show and connect with me on all social media. Thank you. Now let's get to it. Beautiful am I, bountiful am I, blissful am I, why? Welcome to the story of me with Amarjit Singh. This is where I share stories from my unconventional life and relate the psychological insights that I learn from these experiences. Each story will entertain you as well as increase your awareness of your own self-limiting patterns. Then, through the principles of yoga psychology, you will learn how to overcome the resistance that is holding you back from living a more fulfilling life. Join me every Tuesday for a new episode where I share my experiences in psychological understanding, interview guests, and answer listener questions. Now let's get started with the podcast that awakens your inner power through awareness and understanding. Welcome to the show. For those of you who are new, my name is Amarjit Singh, and I am your host. For returning listeners, Welcome back. Thank you for joining me today. Happy New Year. I hope you enjoyed your holidays and 2021 is off to a good start for you. Reflecting back on uh, my past year, starting this podcast now, we're about seven months into it. And I want to really start bringing on more guests to give you exposure to different perspectives. And when I came up with the title of this podcast, The Story of Me, it wasn't really about my story specifically, but the story of people in general. So when my guests come on here, it's their story. And I want to bring on people who have interesting stories and insights into how they uh, looked at their journey and overcame different obstacles so that you can use this information to understand yourself better. I also want to bring on people who are able to understand human behavior and analyze people's journey with some different type of expertise. And today's guest is one of these types of people, Richard Unger who is the founder of the International Institute of Hand Analysis and also the author of the book Life Prints, Deciphering Your Life Purpose from Your Fingerprints. And Richard Unger is a very special guest for me. I've been following him for over 20 years, which you'll hear about on the interview. And he is an expert hand reader. There's no one who is alive today who is better than him. 
He has contributed more to hand analysis than anyone has in over a hundred years. He's a very interesting person and dedicated his life. He's read over 60,000 hands, which is quite a bit. I mean, think about how long this would take and how many different people he's met in his lifetime. So he has a very good understanding through reading the hands. And he has contributed, like I said, more to hand reading than anyone in at least the last hundred years, if not more. One thing that he contributed is the system to be able to read people's hands. And it's a very holistic system that, that is very scientific. Within the system, he's discovered how to read the fingerprints. And this is very interesting. When you look at the hands, we have the lines in the shape of the hands. And these things can change depending on what's happening in your life and your reaction towards it. So we can say that this is personality-level type of information. The fingerprints are different. The fingerprints are created the 16th week in the mother's womb, and they never change. In yoga philosophy, this is when the soul enters the body. So it's believed that this is the, when the soul, the consciousness, enter, enters the, the fetus, and it creates this energy which is manifest in the fingerprints. Richard Unger was able to discover this information in these fingerprints. So this is soul-level information. And he's able to understand what the person's life purpose is, their reason for coming here in this lifetime, and their life lesson, what they're here to learn in order to fulfill their purpose. And this is very important information because everything in your life is related to these two things. Every person that you encounter, the family that you're born into, every relationship that you have, it's all designed to help you fulfill your purpose and to learn your lesson. And so once you understand in words where you're able to articulate in a sentence what your life purpose and your life lessons are, it's easier to understand how the events in your life have contributed to this path. And it's quite interesting, and I've had my own experience, which you'll hear in the interview, about learning this through my reading. This information is, is incredible. It's, it's very effective in, in helping you put into context your life story. So I, I recommend that you, at one point, find, out, find a good hand analyst or find someone who's able to, to really understand how to decode these fingerprints through Richard's system. One thing is when you look for someone to read the hands, if they're telling you they're going to tell you your future, this is not a good analyst. In fact, you should run away because they're infringing upon your free will and they're creating karma for themselves. No one should be telling you your future. If you really want to know your future, it's not so difficult. You know, there's a, a Chinese proverb that says, if you want to know your past, Look at your current condition. If you want to know your future, look at your current actions. And once you understand the framework of your purpose for this lifetime, it's easier to understand these things, and you should not be allowing people to infringe on your free will through this. 
There is so much information in the hands, and we didn't really get into a technical conversation because I think it was better for you to hear his story, his journey, to understand the journey of someone who has contributed so much in, in this field. But really, I mean, the equivalent is someone who's contributed something in any field, the top of that field, that person that's at the top of that field is impressive because they've had to go out on a path on their own and, and learn things that weren't available to them. And Richard has done this, and he's done this in such a big way, and he's going to go down in history as a huge contributor to understanding the hands and to understanding life through the hands. In the episode, we talk about a couple things, the Simeon line. Richard makes a reference to him having a Simeon line, and I just want to give you some background of what this means, is that most people will have a lifeline, a headline, and a heart line, the, the three main lines, but they'll have other lines. The headline is how you process information mentally, the heart line is how you process information emotionally, and the lifeline is how you process information physically. Some people have a headline and a heartline that have merged into one. And this is what they call the Simeon line. And so when you ask someone how they made a decision, they will say, oh, I thought about this for a while and I concluded that this was the best decision. And then there's other people who say, oh, I felt that this was the best decision. And so you can see some people are coming more from the mind to make the conclusion and some people from the heart. People who have a Simeon line, for them it's the same. There's no separation. So the positive aspect of this is when someone with a Simeon line feels passionate about something and is dedicated to doing something, their mind and their heart are focused at one time on one thing, and they are passionate and they, there's nothing that's going to stop them. And so Richard talks about him having the Simeon line and talking about the Simeon passion. Now, there's other aspects to this line that we're not going to get into, but this is what he was referring to when he says that he has a Simeon line. The thing that has captivated me most in handreading is, one, you could understand someone in a very quick way, but the thing is, it's a science and an art. The science is if they have this mark, it means this. And the art aspect of this is that if they have this mark and this mark, how do they go together and how do they impact each other? And so this is what I find very interesting in reading hands that and every time you sit down with someone, it's like a different book. You have to try to understand their life, to put it in the context of some story, to figure out what is the resistance to them fulfilling their life purpose and to finding that meaning in their life. And like I said, so this conversation isn't very technical. Maybe if we have him back, he has a new book coming out. When that comes out, maybe we'll have him back to talk about some technical aspects of hand reading. But in this conversation, we get into more of just his life and how he came upon this and a little overview of hand reading. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. It's it's a longer conversation. I didn't want to edit anything out because I, I think it's valuable to hear it in its entirety. And so it's a longer episode than usual. 
but I hope you enjoy the conversation that we had. Welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining me today, Richard. I'm very excited to uh, have this interview with you. Excellent. I'm glad to be here. And actually, I've been looking forward to this conversation for close to two decades <laughs> because <laughs> it's, it's quite some time. I thought it would well, actually you don't, happen. You don't want to. You don't want to rush into anything, Imogen. <laughs> Take your time. You know, I had I had to think about it for a while, but actually, I, okay. I, I was planning on my idea of the conver- the way the conversation would go would be in a different context. Me coming to you for a consultation. But as soon as I kind of learned about you, I wound up I wound up uh, leaving the country, and I've been out of the country now for uh, almost two decades, and so it hasn't really worked out for me. I, I know that you go to is it Switzerland or Sweden once in a while, and and so I was waiting for you to come there because I was in Europe for a while. No, I I went to uh, Switzerland for about nine weeks a year for close to thirty years, but I stopped doing that four years ago. Okay. And uh, we'll get into the the school and your teaching and everything. But first, I, I'd like to just share how I, I found out about you to give some context so the listeners can understand my, my journey, how it fits in with yours, and, and then to hear yours. Is I wound up going to school to get a master's degree in finance, so very closely related to hand analysis. Mm-hmm. Perfect, perfect, perfect match. Yeah. And I was walking down Venice Beach one day, mm-hmm. and I was going to a friend's store that was at the end of the, the boardwalk. And for anyone who doesn't know Venice Beach in California, it's a lot of performance artists and people reading tarot cards and palm readers. And, and, and all weightlifters. These and weightlifters, yes. Yes. Uh, the, the big bodybuilders. And I was walking down the boardwalk and I just stopped for no reason. I didn't know why I stopped. And I I was just standing there trying to figure out what had happened. It felt like I walked into a brick wall. And I look over to my left and there was a woman standing maybe, I don't know, about 10 meters away from me or somewhere around there. And the next thing I know, I'm standing in front of her. I don't even remember walking up to her. And I, I asked, what are you doing here on this beach? And she pointed down to a sign that said she was reading hands. And I thought, okay, I made some silly joke that you should tell people they're just going to to win the lottery and they'll pay you more money. And I made some silly jokes. And she laughed. She had a good sense of humor. And then she read my hand. And she was actually really good. And I had never really thought about hand reading before. I mean, I thought, okay, it's possible, but these people on Venice Beach are just here taking people's money. I didn't really think about it so much. And I wind up sitting and talking to her for three hours. And we wind up becoming friends, and she was more of an intuitive reader. And so she taught me the basic lines, but really it was about how she connected her intuition. And, and we'll get into this later, how there's different types of readers, scientifically focused readers and, and intuitive readers. And so I started to really get interested in this. I mean, I was always interested in psychology. I studied a, a lot of psychology, and this was a way to really get information from people without really thinking about what they were going to say or worrying about if they were going to tell me what I'm seeing. 
And so I just kept practicing. I would go to these big rave parties where everyone was on ecstasy and and they would just show me their hand and I would talk to them and try to match up their personality to the lines I saw in their hand. And I did this for a while, but I wanted to learn more. And so I started researching on the internet and, and this is when I, I found your school. One time when I was in LA, I talked to your wife, I think it was, on the phone and uh, I wound up talking to her about getting some information and ordering some of the cassette tapes you had from some workshops you gave and, and things like this. And then, who was it? The woman's name was, I think, Terry Lynn. Ah, Terry Lynn. Mm-hmm. Yeah, your wife told me about her, that she was coming down to L.A. and she did a workshop, right. and, I went, and I went to her workshop. And so that's how I really got into your teachings and, and really learned about would you have contributed so much to to hand analysis? And so it was interesting because when I look back about the meeting that woman in Venice Beach, we wound up becoming friends for a while, is it was at a point in my life where I was really opening up my intuition. And this was kind of a birthday present to myself, I guess, because it happened on my birthday. And this is how I really got into reading hands. And, uh, and so it's been doing it now for almost two decades. And so I want to hear how you got started. What got you into doing this, and when did you begin? Hmm. So um, uh, the conversation you had on the beach, the three-hour conversation that you had on the beach, uh, mm-hmm. was that a deeply meaningful, heartfelt connection conversation? I'm assuming it was. Yeah, it was interesting for me because, you know, I, I lived kind of a, I guess, a different type of life. I've, I've lived in many different places and pr- pursued many different vocations. And at this point in my life, I had just finished graduate school. And I was always into philosophy and psychology from a young age. And I never really talked about it much. And this was the first time I really talked about the, the, my ideas of psychology, and, and we had, yeah, it was a quite deep, meaningful conversation. Right. So that, that's part of the key as to how I got started with hands. So um, it's 1969. I started in 1969, uh, approximately the same day that Neil Armstrong put his footprint on the moon. Uh, I bought a palmistry wow. book, a used palmistry book for a dollar fifty in Boulder, Colorado. And um, how old were you at this point in 1969? If you don't mind, I was 21. Okay. And um, uh, this was—I uh, don't know how old you are—but uh, this was during the Vietnam War era. I was born in '68. Okay, yeah. 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 So uh, this is mm-hmm. Vietnam War era in the United States, and I'm male. Uh, I'm 21. That makes me uh, Vietnam eligible. And um, uh, my uh, solution to that uh, problem was to join the National Guard. And I was uh, just out of basic training. Um, Everybody I trained with was sent to Vietnam, and me and two other guys went back uh, to New York State to, to finish college because we were in the National Guard, not the regular Army. But wow, that was uh, uh, an experience that was against my grain. And uh, I, needed a, I needed a break from uh, military uh, day and nightness. 
So uh, I embarked on a cross-country odyssey, uh, and it turned out that I uh, I wound up uh, commune hopping across North America in the summer of 1969. As it turns out, along with thousands of other males and female uh, females during that era, and uh, on that trip, I, I I was looking for some history of the Old West because I was in the West. I had never traveled outside of New York State. And here I am uh, in the, the beautiful Rocky Mountains, and um, I go into this bookstore next to the, the college, and uh, uh, somehow, instead of buying a book on the history of gunslingers and bank robbers or something like this, I, I pick up a, a palmistry book for a buck and a half, and I read half of it sitting on the floor of the bookstore, and uh you know, there was a diagram in there that looked like my own hand. Uh, I have a simian crease, and I saw the uh, simian crease on some page. And I went, okay. Mm. So I bought the book. Uh, I got hooked. I, I read the entire book that afternoon uh, in the, the downtown park. And uh, I was camping uh, along with a friend of mine. We were backpacking. This was a backpacking and commune hopping trip. And uh, so we were up in the mountains outside of Boulder. And there were hundreds of people camped in the mountains outside of Boulder, people from all over the world. And uh, I stayed for about a week. And uh, I was on some some trail off some spot where there were hundreds of people. And people would walk by. I'd be reading my palmistry book. And people would stop in and sit and talk. And that was the nature of uh, that area uh, and that time frame. And um, I'd look at the book and talk to them about their lives. And I was having three-hour meaningful conversations with people who I never would have talked to for more than five minutes otherwise, and certainly not on the depthy level that I was. And it wasn't more than a few days. I was completely hooked on hands. I was completely hooked. And I was hooked by a few things. One, uh, I couldn't figure out too much of what was going on. I couldn't be much more of a beginner. And the book I had was merely an overview outline. And, you know, I could see that thumbs were out, thumbs were in. I could see a few things, very, very few. But I liked the conversations I was having with people. Uh, and I liked the meaningful connections I was making. And a whole part of me emerged that I'm looking back now. At the time, I wouldn't have said it this way, but a whole part of me emerged, and I wanted to, to, to experience life the way that me experienced life. By the time I got back to college that fall, I spent every day looking at hands, reading hands in the snack bar, talking to people about their life, people who were more interested. We'd go to the dorm, and that would be several hours of meaningful conversations, um, they would tell me what was going on. I had a, you know, a few palmistry books at this point. I'd look at the books together with the person I'm reading. And we'd look at the books. We'd look at the heartline. We'd look at theirs. They would tell me their story. I would talk about my story. Somebody would walk in. But looking backwards, I could see now that a, a, a part of me opened up. And it's not a part of me that I was 100% unfamiliar with. But it was a part of me that had only a, sl a sliver of an opportunity to express himself. And now that part was coming out more and more. And not only did I love the way it felt to inhabit uh, this me, 
this essentialized me. Um, but the more hands I read, the more this me infiltrated all areas of my life. And I liked the way my life was starting to look as this me became the navigator of that life. And I have uh, both a, uh, a strong scientific analytic bent and a strong intuitive bent both. And uh, you mentioned uh, finance. The job I quit in the 70s to do this full time, I was a financial planner. Okay. And I had a, I had a career in financial planning. I had hundreds of clients. I was there, uh, well, for two-thirds, I was just their financial advisor. For one-third of my clients, I was their rabbi and financial advisor. Because to be a financial advisor means you're, you have to be in the family. You have to know everything that's going on. And pretty soon, they're asking, telling, and you know, uh, advice came out, blah, blah, blah. It was natural for me to be that person. But I have a, a scientific and an intuitive orientation, both very strong. And... As I started to read more books and to collect hundreds and then thousands of hands looked at, um, kind of like putting together a jigsaw puzzle, uh, starting at the corners and getting a little bit of traction bit by bit, it, it wasn't enough for me to, to figure out that this that I was reading about was true and these 99 other things I was reading about were either haphazardly true occasionally or not true at all. There yeah. had to be underlying reasons that something was true or uh, or it didn't really work in my mind. In other words, if the headline is straight and that means this, there is there a uh, is there a rule when all lines get straight, are they all following the same rule? When the heart line straightens, is it following the same rule that the headline follows? And so it was like a holistic you were looking at all the lines together, how they work together. Well, more than that, I was looking for the underlying algorithms, although that wasn't the word back then that I was familiar with. I was looking for Mm. the underlying algorithms. Why was something true? If the line was flat instead of curvy, and it was Mm -hmm. the headline, is that following the same rule that the heart line or the lifeline would be following? And if the lifeline were shorter, if the headline was shorter, and if the heart line was shorter... Are they following the same rules all over again, but in an emotional context, a mental context, a physical context? In other words, there had to be an underlying rationale, or else it was just haphazard, and you'd have to memorize a million different rules. If you study a foreign mm-hmm. language, how many languages do you speak, Amarjit? Do you speak several? Um, I speak one English good, and I speak Spanish all right, and, and I could understand a little German and Hindi, but... Uh, uh-huh. Yeah. Ich spreche ein bisschen Deutsch. But um, uh, there's rules in languages. Yes, there are irregular verbs. Especially in German. Rules. <laughs> yeah. Yes. But there are, there's regularities, you know? Yeah. It ends with an A, it ends with an O. Feminized, yeah. masculine. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, but why is, is it DOS computer? It's a different subject. But nonetheless... There are underlying rules. And then there's the irregularities because languages formed organically over time and they took in something from these people who came in for, you know, these hundreds of years and, and it's all a mishmash, but there's underlying rules. Hand reading is very much the same way. And that's the, the scientific part of my inquiry is to try to break down what are the rules that underlie things. But there's a lot more than that because people 
are um, people are quirky. You must have noticed it by now. People are quirky. People don't follow exact rules. And the hands I was looking at, you know, uh, the book would say the person who has this type of hand is um, is leader, uh, a leader type. And, you know, they have uh, uh, forge ahead personalities and, you know, oh, follow me. But I would be finding three or four other markers that were timid, uh, scared of the world. Uh, hold it a second. Uh, I thought this person was a forge straight ahead type. And they would be yeah. smarty pants people who were complete dunce idiots about whole sections of their life. Yeah. And it seemed that everybody whose hands I read was a mass of contradictions. And for the longest time, I was so frustrated. I was trying to pigeonhole people into categories according to what I was reading in books and what I was learning and how I was decoding things. But as soon as I thought I knew what this line meant for sure, I found out that it meant that for sure sometimes, but not all the time. And people were contradictory. And that helped me open up a whole new section to my understanding of hands in the paradoxical nature of how people operate. And eventually, if you've read my book, eventually I wound up in the Jesse Jones Medical Library in Houston, Texas, and that changed everything. Yeah, this is a, a very interesting story. And I, I, what you're saying, I get from reading all the things that you have written and from you know, learning your, your system a little bit. It it's, has this, this way of looking at it where the way I, I explain it to people is in hand analysis, there's a science to it and there's an art to it. The science is if they have this one line, this is what it means. But based on this line with this line and this shape of hand and all these things together – then this is the art. How do they fit together? And this is what I get from your reading is this holistic way of, of being able to, for me, makes it easier to tell the story. And when I look at a hand as I try to tell the story, because I, I like you, I, I went and I would look at these books and I would read these books and I'd say, how are these, these people writing this book? What they're saying is very – didn't seem right. It didn't – I didn't find very many books that were good besides – I think my favorite books were uh, – William Benham, the the laws of scientific hand reading, and Cairo, just because I have two headlines, and he was a, a interesting character with two but, headlines. Uh, yeah, and so I related to him a little bit, um, and, and it was interesting when I when I um, got a hand reading from was it Terry Lynn, and I got mm -hmm. it. Is right when I quit my corporate job. I was working for Disney Studios, and, and the, their analyzing the movies as they would come out, you know, how much they would make and budget all the different uh, distribution and all this kind of stuff. And and I, I just got tired of, of working in an office and doing this. And when I I quit this job, actually, to pursue stand-up comedy, I wanted to do something. I was still reading hands, but <laughs> I, I never thought of hand. The funny thing is, you know, I've done many different things, but each thing I've done, I pursued it it started out as maybe a, a hobby, and then I got good at it, and then I said, okay, how can I turn this into some economic situation to make this part of my life? And with hand reading, I did it for, I think, four or five years without it ever crossing my mind that I would be paid to do this. I never thought about it. And so when I quit uh, you know, Disney and I got a reading from Terry Lynch, she found the world on my uh, my moon. 
on the palm. Oh, you have a moon. And so then I said, okay, this makes sense why I wasn't fitting in in, in these, these environments. I worked on Wall Street doing investment banking. And, and so this started to put everything into to kind of a, a picture for me. And I, I did read the story about you uh, coming upon the fingerprints. And I'd love you to share this with my, my listeners. Do you find that for you, this was kind of remembering or was it all learning in this lifetime? Do you feel that you have done this before? Uh, absolutely. And I do feel uh, that I remembered uh, what I'm going to be relating next. It, yeah. uh, it came into my brain whole and intact, not in pieces, not like uh, you're downloading something and you see the bar move across the screen. Yeah. It was instantaneous. But it was instantaneous after years and years and years of sitting with hands and pondering. So uh, I'll tell you the story here. And by the way, I'll take a detour for a second. Uh, I love the, the idea of story. Our lives are stories. I was a lit major in college. That's, uh, I graduated with a literature degree. and That's all about story. Yeah. And as I'm studying story and the construction of story and symbolism, I'm studying hands and cutting classes uh, earnestly to read hands every day instead of being in class and uh, mm -hmm. discussing story. But one of the great things about hands, as you understand what's in your fingerprints and the rest of your hands as well, you're able to restory yourself. And you're able to see the significance of different pieces. And I remember Gilda Radner after... You know, she was diagnosed with cancer and knew she was dying, talked about how her whole life fits together, and she could see the story of her life now. And she spoke very poignantly, brilliantly, and heartfelt about how she understands her story and how she gains meaning for her life from the story and understanding and seeing herself as the, uh, not the victim of her story, but the lead actress in her story. Mm -hmm. And she sees how the pieces fit now. She's restoried. And that's one of the great gifts that hands offer is an opportunity to restory ourselves. So I'm going to tell you a piece of my story. So I'm a financial planner and I'm reading hands. And I went eight years before I charged anybody for reading hands. And I never considered uh, that I would ever charge anybody for reading hands because I'm reading hands all the time because I'm, you know, it's like the same as playing basketball all the time. It's what I do. Yeah, it's fun. Uh, yeah. yeah. <laughs> what, what could possibly be more fun? And not only that, yeah. but it helps people. Holy cow, there's a benefit for others besides. So uh, eventually, my girlfriend in the mid-70s convinced me that I had to charge people for hand readings. And I, I gave my speech, you know, uh, this is a gift uh, from the gods, and I'm just sharing it with humanity, mm -hmm. and I, blah, blah, blah. And she says, and that's what she said to me, blah, blah, blah. Uh, mm -hmm. Stop it already. Uh, that's just your own uh, stuff coming out. And people would be more benefited if they paid for this. And I had to stop and think about that. She was absolutely right. But anyway, oh, so true. I'm, yeah. it's absolutely true. So uh, I started to, to charge you know, a small amount for readings, and I started to do it more often. But I had a family of five to support. I had a job. I had a jacket and tie. Uh, I had an office that I went to. Uh, I had clients who relied upon my advice. I had to like, keep up with things if I was going to give them good advice. I had Monday morning meetings to attend, stuff of this sort. 
And uh, it never occurred to me that I would uh, be making a living uh, doing anything like this. But um, I hit a plateau in my financial planning career. I was, um, I was flattened out. I was, uh, I, I was bored with my job, and I had never been bored with my job. I loved doing what I did. I knew a lot about that field. I studied it thoroughly, and I was able to help people. But I was bored, and it didn't go away. It wasn't like I came back from vacation and it took me a day or two to get back in the swing. I couldn't get back into the swing, and this was six months, eight months, nine months now. I mean, I was I was showing up at work, but I was going through the motions. And uh, my boss uh, called me in, and he said, Unger, uh, you've got to think about this. You can't serve two masters. Uh, what he was talking about was I needed to make a decision between hands and working with my clientele. He thought I would just put hands away. Mm -hmm. And I had already read, there were 31 people in the Houston office. I lived in Houston. I read everybody's hands in Houston already. And when new potential associates would come in, my boss, who was as a conservative Republican, Texas financial planning type as you could possibly imagine, but he realized that this worked. He had me sit next to him as he did the interviews and would uh, check things out with me. So he told me to come in on Friday, uh, this was Monday, and tell me his decision. So on Friday, I came into the office and driving in, I still had no idea what I was going to say. I mean, I loved hands, but how am I supposed to pay the rent with hands? I never made more than a couple hundred mm -hmm. dollars in a month reading hands. I wasn't trying to. And again, I had a family of five to support. It's not just me deciding what to do like I was yeah. in college by myself. So I still didn't know what I was going to do as I came uh, up the stairs into the office. And I put my hand on the bronze plaque on a new plate glass doorway. And I walked in and I smelled the new carpeting. We had a new office. And in an instant, as I put my hand and smelled the carpeting, I knew what I was going to do. I was going to tell him uh, I was retiring. And I was going to do hands. And I hadn't thought anything out. Uh, I just knew this is what I was going to do. And he said he'd keep me on the books for a few months in case I changed my mind. And things <laughs> didn't work out or anything like this. Okay. So now it's 10 weeks later. And money is getting tight. I'm not making any money reading hands. I'm making $200 a month. And uh, how am I supposed to support my family? You know, uh, our savings are dwindling. I've already gone through the couch to pick up change, uh, you know, so I can make uh, some flyers for a lecture I'm doing, which one person attends or something like this. And it's now Christmas in Texas. And I certainly, I'm not going to be reading any hands now. I wasn't, uh, I had no way of gathering business. I didn't work parties or anything like that. So uh, I'm unemployed and I have time on my hands. So I decided to go to the medical libraries. Houston has uh, one of the biggest medical centers in the whole world. Uh, Dallas and Houston are, you know, if you have a strange disease, they probably fly you into either Dallas or Houston, and teams of specialists will look over what's going on with you, which afforded me the opportunity to go to the Jesse Jones Medical Library in Houston, something I'd always wanted to do. I had read every book in English on palmistry, the good ones several times. My original Benham, which I came across today as mm -hmm. I was doing some stuff, my original, my, one of my uh, originals of Benham, I read 
who knows how many times. It was my Bible, yeah, yeah. if you will. That was what I carried into the snack bar every day to be rereading stuff in Bedham uh, before the next person would sit down and we'd launch into what was in their hands. Yeah, I've read that. I've read that book. I think about twenty times. It, to me, that's the, that's the best book that was ever written. I mean, it's not one hundred percent, but it I, I, it is a, a good book. Absolutely, it's the laws, the laws yeah. of scientific. He wrote the laws in eighteen ninety eight, right? But I, he inspired me. He inspired the, a way of thinking. He told me yeah. that I needed to look at everything. He told me to you know to be thorough in my analysis. It's, it's, he taught me a lot. But in any event, I go into the Jesse Jones Library. Uh, thinking, well, you know, maybe there's something in here that I could read. And it took me a day to orient myself because they don't say headline and heartline in medical books. Uh, the, you know, the, the hypothenar eminence, you know, that's the, the mound of Venus, the, the, uh, rather hypothenar eminence, that's the moon, and the thenar eminence, and the distal prox, you know, they have a whole different language in the medical library. What was the context for them to be? Writing about this, yeah. Well, I'm getting right up to that. It took me a day. It took me a day to orient. Mm-hmm. I had to orient to how to get books because I wasn't a doctor, and therefore I'm an alien coming into their environment, and I don't have permission to just get books. I have to fill in forms, and I had to understand how things work. Then I had to, their index medicus doesn't work like the the Dewey Decimal System that I learned in junior high school. So again, it took me a day to orient myself. And then I couldn't believe it. I was like a kid in a candy store. There were thousands upon thousands of articles in this library alone, not including the ones from um, uh, German, Chinese, etc. that hadn't been translated yet. Um, and a lot of them were about fingerprints. A lot of, there were other articles about lines and handshape. But this is palmistry by doctors, which was called dermatoglyphics. Dermatoskin glyphics carvings, mm. and you know that by now, but the listeners mm. might not know that. Yeah. And I'm sitting in the cathedral of palmistry knowledge here. And there's a million other things that they study, and my, my interest is only this little corner of the medical library. But it's bigger than the entire uh, uh, handbook uh, that I've been rereading and rereading over and over. Benham is over 600 pages. Yeah, and I'm looking at six hundred thousand pages wow. in the Jesse Jones Library, and I'm going through them all the time. I made a gigantic index of all the titles I found, and then I uh, put three stars next to the ones I was most interested in. To you know, and I was interested in uh, the twin studies, the child studies, uh, hyperactivity in children with these lines and these fingerprints and that. And I spent whatever it was twelve days from the time the library opened and they had to kick me out at night and maybe I went to the bathroom once while I was there, maybe I didn't. And I was just sitting there all day long with simian line focus and intensity, reading every possible word, taking notes on every different article that was written and doing my research. And then I finally, from a loan from an Oklahoma medical uh, library, I got fingerprints, palms, and soles. That's S O L E S, not not S O U L S, but fingerprint, palms, and soles, which is the standard work in the field by Dr. Cummins and Midlow from the 1930s. And it was reading Cummins and Midlow and how fingerprints formed that this electric shock, this technicolor electric shock, went through 
my system. So I'm reading Cummins and Midlow. You know this now, but the listeners know. Um, And what Cummins is describing is how fingerprints form. This is research that was brand new. He was doing the research in the 20s, writing up his uh, uh, research in the 30s, 1930s. And uh, as the little uh, fetus is forming, the proto-hand starts to form, and there's little ball-like structures that will become the fingers and the palmar surface and the thumb. As this is taking shape, the skin corrugations appear at the 16th week after conception, and within a couple of weeks they become permanent, and they form a topographic map, these little line formations do, of the developing fetal hand. So I'm reading this, a topographic map. Holy cow, a topographic map. That's how you read hands. Well, half of hand Mm -hmm. reading is comparative topography. If something is big in proportion to your hand, you have lots of whatever that part represents. So people mm-hmm. with big index fingers have a lot of index fingerness. People with big thumbs are very thumb-ish, whatever that means, which I knew, but the doctors didn't care. Uh, and they, they're just writing out their figures and they're making charts with numbers and they're keeping statistics. But they don't think any of this means anything because they're doctors and palmistry is stupid to doctors. These are non-medical personnel who are telling the future or something. They don't, they don't know. They don't care. But as I'm reading Cummins, he's, he's doing, uh, he's writing up his research and he's saying that, uh, the hands form a topographic map. And I'm saying to myself, huh, if it's a topographic map, I could see this. It's like I could read the intrauterine hand because I could see the, the size and shape of things by the topographic map left behind. I'm, I'm making a premise, nature, nurture, what's the same, what's the difference. I'm not having the electric shock go through me yet until the next page where Dr. Cummins is writing the same type of line formation that occurs on a fingerprint. Fingerprints have 50 to 100 lines. Each line has its own signature. There's forks and splits and bubbles in the lines. Seven easily classifiable formations, says Dr. Cummins. The same, interestingly enough, says Dr. Cummins, as show up on sand dune ridging. Sand dunes are not smooth. They have a rippled surface with lines going across, with forks, splits, bubbles, the same seven things that fingerprint lines do, just like sand at the beach. When the water recedes, you could see a ripple pattern at the water's edge, and you could put your toes through it. And somehow you know that different waves will leave a different imprint on the beach. And I'm looking at the picture in Cummins' book of a chemical suspension. The stuff is settling in the beaker, and then electricity goes through. And at the bottom of the beaker, the stuff settles out in a way that looks just like a sand dune, just like a fingerprint. And as I looked at that picture, and I could feel it now in its minor variation, I felt an entire shock wave go through my system where it was like waking up in the middle of the night with a technicolor dream. And in a second, I'm sitting up like this. And of course, I'm realizing that a wave energy imprint has left a map behind in our body five months before we were born. And in that instant, I just knew that this is a soul imprinting. And I could read the message of that soul imprinting. And the entire system that you read about in Life Prints and then I'm writing the the, the the larger sequel and explaining much more of how this operates. I'm at the last edits phase right now. I'm excited to tell you. But in that second, I remembered. And I didn't figure it out. Or I knew 
And the entire thing that you read in Life Prints was in my brain, whole and intact in that nanosecond, or in the split of that nanosecond. Wow. And since that time, I haven't changed anything in that system. I've read another 40-some-odd thousand hands since that day. My students have read another, who knows, a half a million hands using the same system and reported back to me. I haven't changed anything in the system other than how I talk about it. And I talk about it in a much better form, and I've learned from people how it has affected their lives, and I've learned better ways to to resonate uh, and to empathize with what the story as revealed in the fingerprint means and the impact it has on people's lives. Because I didn't realize, I thought I was on to something important, but I had no idea. It's like I saw this shore of the ocean. I thought that's a big piece of water. I had no idea the scale of what I had opened myself into. But my life changed in that instant. The same way that my life changed in Boulder, Colorado, when I picked up that palmistry book for $1.50. And and when you said you had this experience of feeling this electricity go through you, it's interesting because I had a similar experience and I I was reading this book on alchemy and it was really strange is is about the same point in my life where I, I met that woman who read hands and I had I bought this book on alchemy and I put it next to my bed and I was still finishing up another book so I said okay when I finish the book I'm reading I'll read this one and I had the, these experiences one was similar to you where I I felt this electricity go through me and the next day I'm reading in this alchemy book that th- there's a sign that you're on the right path where you'll get this 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 feeling, this sensation that goes through you. And so there must be something about connecting to some some knowledge that you had in a previous life or some knowledge that, that is is at the core of whatever your consciousness is. Because I read about this experience, I've had something similar to this as well. And and I know many people who have changed their path from something that was more traditional to not so traditional, they've all had these kind of experiences of more of a remembering. And, and the, these points where something just kind of clicked in them. Isn't that exciting? It, it's incredible. When I when I had it, I, 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 I that's why I really resonate with you saying this. And, and our listeners, a lot of my listeners are yogis, and, and maybe they know me from reading hands a little bit, but they don't understand what you have contributed to hand analysis is is incredible. I mean, this 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 experience you had to to understand the fingerprints is is something that I, I think has to be the biggest contribution in my lifetime and your lifetime of of hand analysis. Well, so thank you so much in that regard. And um, you know, I, I I get to be the guy who sat in that medical library and get to introduce fingerprints to uh, Western hand reading, although fingerprints had been looked at uh, in India, uh, China, and Japan for thousands of years, although there's nothing extant in the literature that I've read that makes any substantial sense. Maybe it did make sense, but what remains uh, in literature and what's been translated does not. So I get to introduce uh, fingerprints and my students get to verify it and they get to try it out with their people and you get to use it, etc. But 
you know, hands, if it were only like other professions, imagine that you were a chemist, Amarjit, uh, would you have to invent everything? Would you have to come up with your own periodic table? Would every new chemist have to figure that out? No, no. It, it moves along incrementally. And palmistry is only barely the same. Palmists do not meet and yell at each other and get all insulted to each other and uh, walk out on the lecture of so-and-so because their wife ran off with this. Who knows what? You know, palmists traditionally have been on their own island someplace, and they have their little set of students. And then, you know, Benham had Meshner, and then uh, Benham dies, Meshner dies, and, you know, his book remains, but his influence, you know, wanes like this. There's not like an ongoing school of Benhamites uh, that are teaching the Benham system. There are, if you've read, uh, there are some newer books that revisit Benham. Very nicely done, no, by the way. But still, uh, still, um, somebody uh, makes a discovery and then it, t- it tends to get lost in, you know, the mire. Uh, palmistry does not progress, or at least in its history, that there's written records of, does not progress like other studies where everything builds and everything builds and everything builds upon the shoulders of others just a little bit because it's on the fringes of society, at least in mm. Western culture. And because of that, it, it doesn't get to have its edifices. Like, uh, again, imagine if every chemist had to reinvent the periodic table, how, how much more difficult progress would be. And I can't wait. I hope I'm alive to see it. Uh, I can't wait to see the day that there's the threshold, you know, the hundredth monkey. There's just yeah. enough hand readers around that there's a base of the pyramid upon which other research can build and build and everything builds upon that which came before. And then everybody yells and screams and says, I disagree, I agree, and your wife, my wife, my husband, and, and just like every other field. But inch by inch, the democracy of it wins because things that aren't true disappear over time and things that are true become uh, solidly in and things build on that and things build on that. And then, of course, the next group of people looks back and says, the other guys did a lot, but they didn't realize what we know. Yeah, you know, it's interesting because about 10 years ago, when I started to really be able to put it all together to really help people. And instead of just in the beginning when I'm learning, I'm just saying this is a part of your personality, this is part. And then I got to the point where I'm putting it together to tell the story to try to help them. And I started to look at this, and I I love psychology. I I study psychology all my life. And I think my belief is that this is where it belongs in psychiatry, psychology. Because it's like going to the doctors and you say, I have this problem and they take you and you get an x-ray and they look at the x-ray and they read the x-ray and they say, well, this is wrong with you or this is wrong with you. And to learn how to read hands and do it very well takes a lifetime. I mean, I'm sure you can agree to this. And to be a good psychiatrist takes a lifetime. And there's very few people that can do both, right? Yeah, many lifetimes. And there's very few people who can do both or even have an interest in doing both. In my idea, about 10 years ago, I contacted this, this uh, inventor in Poland is to create some kind of machine 
that can read and take the information from the hands. And he had this technology that it sends out a ray into the hands and it could tell you how deep the lines are. And oh, that's so my, interesting. Yeah. And so this was my interest is because now if you look at the, the science, it's basically they're measuring finger lengths and saying, okay, if this finger is longer than this finger, because there's so many variables and you can't really isolate the variables to do a true scientific study. But if you can have a machine that can take thousands of hands and start to computate this and, and, and be able to print out a report and say, this is this person's issues, this is their personality, this is how they deal with this situation. And I believe that this will happen in one day, whether it's in our lifetime or not. And I was, I was trying to pursue this, but I think this is a huge project. But this is where it really belongs. So when you go into the psych, psychiatrist, you take an x-ray of your hands, and then they have a report. And so they, they can sit there, because what does a psychiatrist do is the first how many sessions, they're just trying to get information. You, you know this. You look at someone's hand, you have more information than a typical psychiatrist could get in six months to a year, even if the, they could ever get it. Uh-huh. And you can do this in an hour. I I could see it in under a minute. Yeah. And so this is where it really belongs, in my opinion, is it belongs in in psychiatry. Because I I thought the same, and I still think the same, but with a caveat. So uh, I moved to California uh, from Texas eventually because I wanted to start a school, and I decided that the the place to do that was going to be California. And I started the International Institute of Hand Analysis back uh, in 1985. And the fact that we're still in existence almost 36 years later, uh, I'm very proud of that fact because any metaphysical organization has trouble doing that. But uh, I came out here. Uh, oh, cow. Now I forgot where I was going with my story. Well, I was telling you about how this, the, the, the hand analysis belongs in psychiatry. And you were telling me about starting the school Ah, I've lost my train of thought. It'll it's come right. back to me at the wrong time or the right time, as the case yeah, may be. Yeah, it's okay. We get back to it. But I really believe that it needs to get there. And I talked to this guy, and, and the, maybe now the technology is getting better where it's going to be possible to do this because this is really where it belongs. You don't realize oh, how— yeah, now, Oh, excuse okay. me. Can I jump in now? Yeah, perfect. My train okay. Of thought. okay, so I come out to California. And um, I find as I take a look at my last hundred readings that the largest number are for therapists and counselors. And mm-hmm. about a third of the people I've read for, you know, they have their own clientele of people, and but they were interested in their, their own stuff. And so I decided to do workshops specifically for therapists and counselors with the idea that you could see in, you know, you could see in a minute. You could see, you know, if you're bad at it, you could see it in three minutes. Mm-hmm. But you could see right away what's going on. And think of how much therapy time you could save, et cetera, like this. What I found was that that was not a popular thing to tell therapists. Why they didn't Well, as they explained to me, that's what the first six months of therapy is for. <sighs> yeah. And uh, uh, my brother's a therapist. He explained it a little different. He says, the content of what's going on with the person is not near as important as the relationship you form and the quality of the hour-long sessions that you have over the six months and what comes out in your personal relationship during that time. It doesn't matter what the facts of what's going on with them are. Isn't that interesting? They didn't want to know what I was able to see in the hands. 
their model is very, very different. And, I, and I've gotten to appreciate the importance of the therapeutic relationship and how you connect with your ReD in a hand reading. It's not the same as therapy, but how you interact with the ReD and the conversation that takes place and what you can learn by the way the person owns or disowns their life experience, victimizes themselves, et cetera, yeah, yeah. in the way they talk to you uh, is very useful. And again, I'm not doing therapy with people, as my brother reminds me regularly. I'm not doing therapy, but still, the information, I believe differently than the therapists or the traditional therapists do. I want to have information about myself. I think information about me is useful. And I think I can use that information to make a, uh, to make improvements in myself and my life. And in the standard therapy model, they take a, they take a completely different, uh, approach. But I do believe that hands will eventually get used by therapists because it's so useful. It's absolutely useful. And let me put this in, Amajit. I can see you want to jump in here. Let me just put this in. When I started working in Switzerland, I found a completely different approach. Uh, the Americans were more, this is my territory. These are my clients. I have no need to open up to a new uh, anything. I'm doing this type of therapy with them. We don't need your hand-reading stuff intervening mm -hmm. in my territory. I started reading hands in Zurich by the way, in a building next to the original Jung Center. I oh, look out the window, yeah. there's the Jung Center. But I start reading hands there, and therapists start bringing me their clients and taking my classes. And they wanted to, uh, to unite. And, and there were times we'd have three or four therapists working on the case of Mr. Smith or Mrs. Smith, and I would say what the hand says, and this therapist is a Jungian, says this, and we would be working together. So working in a community fashion, was very Swiss and working as a, uh, a rugged individualist. That was American. So I did find a yeah. different attitude when I worked in Switzerland. Yeah, definitely. You know, it's interesting because I'm sure you get this a lot too, is you get people who come to you not knowing really what to expect. And many people afterwards, they go, wow, this was like a therapy session. I thought you were just going to tell me some things. And I, I, uh -huh. I said, I said this, this is it. it. It's an intense therapy session where I'm going to give you this information. But one thing that I learned after doing this for a long time is you want to give them a lot of information, but if you give them too much, it overwhelms them. And so what I started doing is to, to tell a story. And I say, okay, this is the story of your life using the fingerprints, using all the lines to tell the story. And this is where the difficulties are. And then I started asking them questions like a therapist would so that they would start talking about so I can relate it and say, this is exactly what I'm talking about. Do you see the relationship? Yeah, that's good, Amarjeet. I, I, don't, I don't see it as not therapy. I see it as therapy. Maybe it's a little different uh, because of, of the relationship like you're talking about. Well, you're not seeing them unless you're seeing them once a week for two years. Yeah, this it's kind a of different thing. Different model, of course. It's a different, it's a different model. model, but that's what I'm saying is it's possible to then get this information. And I've done this with people. I do coaching in in a longer term uh -huh. where I meet with them once a month or once a week, yeah. and then we we talk about their life and how it's affecting what they you know I told them in their hand and how this is related. And it's a, it's an invaluable tool. Uh, if people really understood, especially in the the environment of psychology, if, if at the universities they really understood what this can do, it, it would 
push forward psychology, psychiatry, and so much. It's, it's well, incredible. I'm Arjit. I'm, I'm Arjit. So uh, in traditional uh, psychology, uh, is there a soul? Is there uh, karma to contend with? Is well, this there, is the problem, yeah. Is, um, uh, as my brother, uh, who's been a therapist almost as long as I've been a hand reader, mm-hmm. and he works in New York City, uh, where I grew up, uh, uh, he doesn't, and all his colleagues, the colleagues he plays poker with uh, on Tuesday nights or whatever, none of them talk to people about meaning in life, he tells me. Yeah, but this is the, I talk this, to everybody about meaning in life. Yeah, but this is this is the big problem with therapy is they're looking at it from the mind and the body and not the true self that's behind it. Well, but, that's how I think, and apparently that's how you think. Yeah, but but it's starting. I'm starting to see many yoga teachers that are also you know PhD psychiatrists, and and I'm starting to see them incorporate this into therapy more. In fact, I think have, yeah, definitely. And, and and so I, I think this will start to change a little bit as the population also starts to look for more meaning, especially with the way things are going. I mean, this is really what drove me into to this is trying to find this meaning. Why am I, you know, wanting to leave this environment that I created and and and, and earning very good money? And why, why? What is it? And then when I saw, okay, I have this this whirl on my palm and this is what the driving force is, is to bring meaning in this. And then I start to look at my careers and all the jobs I've had and they've all been doing the same thing, but just in different environments. And mm-hmm. knowing that little thing said, okay, I know what I'm doing is right, but I need to find the better environment. So one way to interpret the moon world that you have, the moon is this section yeah, over here yeah. and worlds over here are uncommon. And it, it's a big deal when it appears. It's a dominant marker when it's on the hand. One way to interpret that marker is the meanings teacher. Yeah, the bringer of meanings. Yeah, bringer of meanings, interpreter of meanings, and the teacher of meanings. So here you are, you're this big in the womb. And if I had some magnifier that allowed me to go in there, I could have been talking to your mom and dad and telling them that your son-to-be has an exalted destiny possibility. Whether he lives it or not remains to be seen. He will still see. (laughs) He has an exalted destiny possibility to be a meanings teacher. And if he does that, he'll feel on purpose with his life. Even on bad days when, you know, he gets a flat tire in the rain, he'll still feel on purpose with his life if he can become a meanings teacher. And I could be telling this to your dad and mom. You were born in 68. I could be telling them that in 67, I suppose. Yeah. Well, it's, it's interesting because I, I've, you know, I work in the yoga community and, 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 uh, I know lots of people in this and I've read a lot of hands in this community. And when people have babies, you know, after a month or so, I'll read their fingerprints for the parents. And I've done this many times. Here, and, here. And, and, and then, uh, in fact, there's, there's a f- one, one, uh, family that I'm, I'm close with. I've read for, they had an old a daughter that was about six or seven. I read her, and then they had a baby, and, and five years later, I read the baby. And when, when I was reading the, the baby's fingerprints, the daughter said, hey, why don't you read mine? I go, I already did. And their parents had the what I wrote down, and they gave it to her. And, and it's, it's very fascinating in, in the That's amount. lovely. That's lovely. Yeah, it's, it's beautiful. One of the things I got to do in Switzerland, which I didn't do here, was I got to read for enlarged families. Uh, everybody lives where they grew up in Switzerland, or at least in a yeah, large yeah, degree, yeah. as opposed to North America. So, uh, and I would be 
at a, a clinic outside of uh, Zurich where the person who's sponsoring me is an MD and a psychiatrist, and it's a small town, and she knows everybody in town. And not only am I reading for the, the kid who has some sort of problematic behavior or something, but we've got the siblings, we've got the parents, we've got the grandparents, and maybe a great-grandparent, because they all live within five kilometers. And we could all be there. I could take all their handprints. I could look at all the handprints on this big table and look at the connections between them. And what I found, uh, not surprisingly, what I found was that there was a family story. Oh, yeah. And yeah. Uh, uh, you know, I didn't have to uh, be a depthy theorist uh, and study for years. Um, people were affected by the family story, usually in unseen ways. And many of the children who were problematic enough that they were at the clinic and the doctors were having trouble figuring out what was wrong with them. And, you know, it's not like the doctors were dumb or anything. They, they just couldn't see any reason why little John was such a problem, uh, et cetera. Well, it seemed over and over again, not a hundred percent of the time, but, uh, uh, three quarters of the time of the cases I looked at, the problem with the kid was that he didn't fit in the family story neatly. Yeah. And the parents needed to change the story so that the kid fit in. Why is it? It's not the kid's job. Uh, he's only five years old and he was already throwing dishes or something when he was four years old. Uh, what's going on? He can't explain himself. Uh, the parents don't know what the problem is. Being stricter with him isn't helping anything. The family story is a non-match for the kid's fingerprints, for for the kid's life purpose. And the parents need to adjust in some way to make room for this. And when that was done, when the parents shifted, the kids' behaviors shifted, we found. And, you know, that's worth a library of books right there and yeah. much more research that never got followed up on at the depth that I would have liked. Yeah, I've read a, a few families like this, and you see how they all kind of fit together. And I had one interesting story. I was dating this girl, his girlfriend, and her and her mother didn't get along. And my girlfriend had started her own business and was doing quite well. And, and then her mother came to visit, and I looked at her mother's hands. And my girlfriend at the time, she had one of her strongest prints was the thumb. She was able to manifest what she wanted to and to start this business and know how to do it. And this was the mother's weakest fingerprint. And so for the listeners, the thumb is really how you affect your environment, your will to, to do things and, and how you complete or not complete. And so her mother was kind of jealous of her because of this. And it was quite interesting. I mean, there are some more things going on, but it was quite sure. interesting to see that the mother's Weakness was the daughter's strength, and the, yes. this was a, a conflict with them. So there's family dynamics exactly like this. I expect to find it. If I see like eight pair of hands, I'm expecting stuff exactly like that. What's mm -hmm. alike and what's exactly the opposite? But it's the same in a business setting, Amrajit. We have eight vice presidents working for the XYZ Corporation. And we'll have people in the exact wrong jobs. We'll have the person with a headline all the way down to the wrist and healer lines over here working as the financial, uh, the head of finances in the mm. company, except that they spend all day being the therapist for the other vice presidents because everybody knows that you go see Fred when you have a problem. Yeah. And 
There are people with strong thumbs and weak thumbs. It's a, that's another form of family. And one of the things I've believed for a long time is that uh, although I was attracted to the therapeutic community because uh, of my own uh, interest in psychology, like you're talking about with yourself, uh, I also have a business uh, background. And my own thinking is that when businesses start to make better use of the information in the hand, and of course they will at some point because it works, and they yeah. don't care why it works or what it works. We're just doing better financially because this works. So when businesses uh, take on hands, you know, doctors have research hands. They fill the library with all their information, and the rest of the world hasn't beat a path to their door. They don't care. I mean, on TV, Johnny Carson gets his hand read by some famous uh, actress or something, and nobody buys one extra palmistry book because of that. Um, when therapists read hand, the more therapists are making use of hands again because it works. And no matter what the attitude of the whole field is by it uh, as a whole, individuals keep making inroads and humanistic psychology keeps expanding. But maybe when businesses start making more money, yeah, the world will take note of hands. Well, have you been asked by corporations to help them in their interview process or anything like this? A small amounts. When I was a financial planner, I worked for two different companies during my six years of doing that. And in the first company, uh, my boss was also the guy I played basketball with and poker with, et cetera, like that. So he was a pal. And after a while, um, you know, I got to read his hands and blah, uh, blah, blah, blah. He would have me sit in on the interviews with people. I didn't ask to do that, but he would ask me to sit in. But he was so good at what he did. He would say, so this guy's this, this, and this, isn't he? I say, oh, yeah. Uh, his hand does this, his hand does. He would just be able to tell by being in the interview with somebody. And the same thing with my super Republican, super short hair, uh, couldn't be more straight-laced uh, conservative boss. Um, he would he would sense what was going on. He had a good sense of That's how he got to be the boss. You know, he was good enough at his job that he didn't need to look at hands to know what I could tell by looking at what the guy was fussing with during the reading and how, you know, what he did. With, if they're holding their thumbs like this yeah, during yeah. the interview, that's not a good sign. Yeah. Well, I mean, you, you have some of these, these companies now, maybe especially in Northern California, the tech companies giving these psychological analysis or these tests. This seems like it would be a much better use of people's time. It's It, it seems odd to me that especially – having a school that does this, that people wouldn't ask you more? Well, uh, I found that that's, that's a, a hard sell. Uh, it's mm -hmm. not an easy sale to make uh, for a variety of reasons, too, too much to get into here. But I can tell you what I have done, which uh, you might not have thought of, uh, and I'd like to bring to your attention. And that is I have done some work where we looked at the fingerprints of um, – uh, a group of vice presidents or the higher-ups in a company, and we put their fingerprints together onto one fingerprint chart. I made a fingerprint chart mm -hmm. of the heads of the company. So I'll tell you one story. So I was reading hands at a, uh, a charter school in Rhode Island, and there was 135 kids and about 15 teachers and muckety-mups uh, from the uh, school. And I was there for a week. 
uh, reading hands. The teachers were sitting in on the interview, some parents. The 15-year-olds were wonderful. They were unerringly present, super clear, asking good questions, uh, and, you know, making use of what I was revealing to them about their hands. And on the last day, uh, I did a talk to the entire group of uh, the teachers and the administrators, and they were telling me what I did that and how they could use it and blah, blah, blah. I said, well, would you be open to doing a joint fingerprint thing? And yeah, so I took all the fingerprints and I put it up on the board, and then I figured out that their life purpose as a group was a man or woman with a message, right? Mercury was their high-ranking print. When I added up the high-ranking and low-ranking prints, their group was not there to teach kids. That was secondary. They were there to deliver a message to the educational system. Wow. So I brought that topic up, and the room became electric. That electric shock thing happened to the room. And I could have left for 24 hours and come back. They still would have been talking, again, without going to the bathroom or getting a coffee break. Because everybody was turned on by the notion that they needed to pass on that what they were learning. They had 135 kids this year, and they were in business for like six or seven years. And that's a 1,000 kids. But they could be affecting millions of kids with what they have learned about education, and they need to do that. Wow, that's interesting. What a shift. And my own belief is that the uh, future of business is by offering a life purpose enhancement experience to the people working there. At some point, you can't give people more money, and now they're motivated to do more work for you. There's only so Mm -hmm. much money that these people could make where it matters if they get another 100000 a year or not. It doesn't. You give them a corner office, how many corner offices can they have? But you give them a peak experience from a life purpose perspective. That's a spiritual, deep meaning of life experience to be here in alignment with my own purpose. And now they have what I was getting in the snack bar 50 years ago, and they can't wait to get back and to do it again. And so I do believe that that's going, that's going to be the, that the, Break open the door, the, the door just enough to get the, the toe, the camel's no, you know, into the camel's tent, you know, just to sneak into the world of business that way. I hope that comes to pass. Yeah, that's, that's interesting because it's, it's kind of like for me, I, I was making more money than I thought I would ever make and I was not happy and I was just trying to figure out and I knew, okay, I have to pursue something that, allowed me to bring meaning in some way. And it, at this point, it was comedy. I was trying to be funny and, and everything. And when I got that reading and they saw that mark on my, my palm, I said, okay, this makes a lot of sense. It, it, it brought that meaning. Then it didn't matter about the money because then you're focused on, okay, now I feel my path. I've been feeling it this whole time, but now I can really commit to it. I can really and, – and this is – like people tell me – You can had, also put it – you can put it in words also. Yeah, this is the thing. Is is like I, I had someone come to me one time and they said, tell me something I don't know about myself. And I said, if I do that, there's one of two problems. One, you don't know yourself and this is not very good. Or two, I'm wrong. But what I could do is I can take your story and put it into a framework where I show you all the relationship with everything how your life purpose is, is not going because you're not working on this life lesson and all these things and put them all together. And, and this is really what I think a, a good hand, hand analysis or a good therapist should be able to do is to be I able to so take too. 
all these parts of the life and show how there's not one thing that's not related. And for the listeners, just to to get into this, because we we know what we're talking about because we've read your books and I and I've studied hands for a while. But what what Richard is talking about that he discovered about the fingerprints is how to figure out a person's life purpose and life lesson through their fingerprints. And this is information that that is incredible to be able to understand what your reason for coming here in this lifetime is. You know, if you look at yoga psychology, the soul enters the body the 16th week in the mother's womb, and this is when these fingerprints are being created. And this How cool is that? It's incredible. This is why maybe the listeners are hearing me. I'm so excited to be talking to you because it's something that that is a huge contribution to to our culture. Think about if everyone could figure out – what should I be doing with my life? Not a specific job, but how should I be expressing myself? Because it's not a job, it's it's the expression. And what is the resistance to this expression? And this is how I, I use the yoga psychology. I use what I learned from the hand analysis. And to say, okay, there's one flow of consciousness, and then there's corruption to this flow of consciousness in the form of resistance to the self. And if you could understand what's going on within you, and what should be coming out, it's, it's, it's very easy to envision your purpose in life, to have this information and to feel fulfilled, even when you're having difficult days, when you're still struggling, because it doesn't make it easier, but it just makes it easier to understand and comprehend the truth of your experience. Mm. And, and So also, once you had a name for your life purpose, yeah, once, once you had a phrase – you, uh, your life purpose is doing everything it can to find you anyway. Your exalted destiny is everywhere that you can look, smell, taste, and see, because that's just the way things work, apparently. And it's knocking on your door constantly because it's a benign universe in which we live. However, do we have eyes to see? Uh, can we recognize our life purpose when it's knocking on our door? Uh, what if I walked out of that bookstore uh, in Boulder, Colorado, with a book about sheriffs and lawbreakers or something, instead of well, what would I be doing? Instinct. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> etc. So uh, a person has to be open. Beethoven um, ha- has to be open uh, to music, but music is trying to find him, uh, even if he's working a- as a bus driver. You know, he's whistling while he's driving his bus. He's he's singing with the windshield wipers. Music is everywhere. So when I can name somebody's life purpose, I have now alerted them. It's something that their brain will refuse to forget, uh, or mostly. And as they go through their life, and as their life purpose keeps knocking on their door, they're much, much more likely to hear the knock of that door. So I'm not so much telling them their life purpose. I mean, I am. But I'm opening them to the hearing and seeing of it as it knocks on their door. Because if what I say to people doesn't resonate on some deep level, poof, they're out of there. They don't think about it again. It changes nothing. But if if they keep hearing that knock on their door, that knock on their door will change their life for them. Yeah, I can tell you from my personal experience, every job I had in many different careers, from corporate finance to working on Wall Street to being a comedian to to doing what I'm doing now – they all had this underlying thing is I, I was – when I was working in investment banking, I was a consultant. I was advising people what to do, trying to bring meaning to to them. 
when I was a comedian. I was telling jokes, but trying to get them to understand what's happening in our society and trying to bring some meaning. And when when uh, was Terry Lynn when she looked at my hand and saw this this whirl? I said, "Okay, now I see. I should be bringing meaning, but what environment?" And now I start to see this. And so, like you said, yeah, it's trying to show you the whole my whole life. But once you're able to see it and articulate it in in a, a phrase or a sentence or a couple sentences, it's much more powerful. And and then you lose this this. This you start to see the thread of how all these things are related, and you start to see that okay, it wasn't a mistake that I was working here. I was trying to build up and to communicate this expression, mm-hmm. and, and this is well, why. And you're yeah, excuse me, go ahead. This is why I think your contribution to to hand analysis has got to be the biggest contribution in in our lifetimes. I I, I mean, it, it, I think since William Benham's book, I, I think this is the, the this is the next big contribution. If people can just really understand the value of understanding yourself, and and I I tell people, you know, we say you can't judge someone based on the way they look, but this is incorrect. People are a manifestation of their psychology, and their psychology is a, a manifestation of their karma of their experiences. And if you can take away your own projections, people are exactly the way they look. And there's people who could read faces, but it also comes down to the hands. It comes down to every aspect of you. In fact, you know, they talk about this face recognition software. You know what? They're able to identify people better from the gait of their walk than they are from the face recognition software. Think about that. The way you walk is so unique that they can identify you better this way than through your face. And it just shows you that everything about you is this manifestation of your experience. And if you can learn how to read yourself, read the people, you can see this experience in a much clearer way and understand your your potential for your self-expression. <laughs> I have a quick little story, Amrajit. Uh, so I was working with my dad at his restaurant. I worked in restaurants for eight years. I had my own restaurant while I was still in college. Uh, so um my family is steeped in the restaurant business. So uh, it's 2.30 in the afternoon between the lunch and the dinner time at the restaurant. This is a, gi- a gigantic restaurant in New York City. It seats 600 people uh, with the outside tables wow. and uh, the warm weather. A gigantic restaurant. So there's a half a dozen of us on break, on lunch break at 2.30 in the afternoon. And we're just laughing and having fun with each other. And this guy walks into the restaurant and we all look at each other. Because he walked exactly the same as my dad. Nobody mm. walked like my dad. Mm. We all knew what we were seeing. Yeah, we were yeah. seeing my dad's walk. And we all looked at each other and said, he's, he's coming in to ask for a job. And that's exactly <laughs> what he was. Wow. And he worked. You know, he, he was a perfect restaurant. He fit in the restaurant. And, you know, we all saw it at the same time. I just thought of that as you were talking that's about how a man walks. Yeah. What is the most uh, interesting or strangest experience you've had reading someone's hands? Oh my word! They're, you they're must strange have had in different thousands. ways. Yeah. Um, yeah, they're strange in different ways. Um, one of the things I find is that uh, there are a lot of people who have life purposes that are ridiculously hard given their personality type, and you know they're a, a very mental. Um, completely logical person, but their life purpose is to open their heart. And, you know, they have 10 loops on their fingerprints for, you know, we can make our our knowledgeable in-talk here. But, um, uh, and 
to watch the poignant struggle as a person whose orientation is so, you know, like Spock from, you know, the Vulcan from, uh, uh, from TV, Star Trek. Um, and to see that person make such incremental gains in fathoming his or her own heart and to express feelings at all, uh, you know, makes me cry. And to see, um, uh, the, 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 um, the, the act of will, uh, that it takes to let go of the will and allow to happen what is trying to happen anyway. So I'm moved by almost every reading. And the things that are interesting to me uh, might not be interesting to the listeners. I mean, Alana, uh, who's read, uh, I don't know, 25 or 30,000 pair of hands and is now retired, my wife, uh, from her uh, hand reading career. Uh, you know, I'll talk to her. Uh, I do a reading in the afternoon and, uh, and I'll talk to her and she'll say, so what did you find? And I'll, and I'll say this and then, she and I have a chance to talk about other people with similar issues in their hands or students who had something like that. Mm-hmm. And we can recount our experiences together and then the different ways in which we would talk to a person who has that in their hands. So the things that are memorable to me are uh, little smaller things like that. It's not like a person has six fingers, although I've seen that too. And the people with some super weird something or other in their hand or the famous person uh, who I've read for, um, I got to read for Kareem Abdul-Jabbar, uh, the the famous mm. basketball player, and I'm a basketball aficionado. Uh, so here's uh, he went to a, a rival high school when I was in high school at that in New York City at the time, and I was following his career ever since he was 16 years old, and now he's you know a famous man in his 70s who uh, gets interviewed. Uh, on TV about the issues of the day, and I got to read his hand. So those things are meaningful to me, mm-hmm. uh, but not as meaningful in palmistic circles themselves. Uh, they don't have a real unusual thing for palmistry annals. Do you find it more difficult to read someone like that, that you already know from the, the television, or you know their personality a little bit from what you, you these preconceived ideas? No, not at all. I have no trouble. You know, I, I look at the hands, I'm in the hands. You know, whatever I had before doesn't matter at all. I climb in. It's like, boom, I'm in their world. Yeah. The thing with somebody like Jabbar is I want to ask him, so what was it like to play against so-and-so? And what about, I remember the game where they did this to you. Yeah. Are you still angry about that? You know, I, I want to interrupt myself and talk to him about his basketball career. And, of course, you know, I'm there to do his hands, so I have to stop myself if I could. Yeah. It's. I had a couple of interesting experiences. One was a cute experience. I had this. I read this family, and they had a daughter that was, I believe she was about four, and she walked up to me and she gave me her hands and she said, "Tell me something about inside of myself." <laughs> a four-year-old. Yeah, and, and I thought that was really cute and interesting. And, and then I start to teach her how to read hands a little bit. You know, and and uh, it was quite funny. This was I I wonder what she'll be like in ten years. But uh, this was interesting. The other interesting thing I have is that people with the world on their palm will find me in strange ways. And and I wonder if this happens to you because you have the Simeon line of people with the Simeon line will will find you. But you've probably read so many hands that it's no. It's, no, it's not the simian that attracts people to me. Mm-hmm. And the way that you talk, 
Mm. Amrajit sounds like a person who has a whirl on his moon yeah. uh, because you keep coming back to meaningness. Yeah. Uh, you know, you can't go two or three sentences without you being pulled back to your, you know, like the gravity pulls you back there. You could jump up, but boom, you're back down with yeah. your feet on the moon. Uh, no, the, the people I, I read for an extra amount of long mercury fingered people, cause I'm a long mercury fingered person. Are you putting so your I have a long pinky. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay. So the way, uh, I talk about, uh, the, the big is contained in the small, the small is contained in the big, and the type of um, uh, comparative uh, stories that have an ironic O'Henry ending that link back to – that's very Mercurian. Yeah. And so I, I have a moon and a long Mercury. I'm a storyteller type imagination and, uh, and talking, talking, talking. Uh, so those type of people uh, come in to see me in a slightly higher percentage – than the others because they recognize I'm a member of the same tribe as they are. And also people who have spiritual psychology markings in their hands, a combination of uh, the headline going deep into the moon and mm. a gifted healer or, or stars on the moon or lines of uh, intuition or clairvoyance. Um, you know, if they've heard a tape of me with somebody else, they recognize a fellow member of their tribe and they, they want to connect. And of course, then I see their hands, and you know they look like a member of my tribe. Yeah, that's I had interesting. To make, make your acquaintance. Yeah, I, I had uh, many episodes where I would be sitting there, and some someone would come up to me and say, "Hey, I, I saw you here two weeks ago, and I felt some some pull to come to meet you." And then someone told me that you read hands. Can you look at my hand? And then I'd see the the palm whirl. And so I, I'd get a lot of things like this, but I had one instance, had to be the strangest and, and most interesting experience I had in reading, not reading hands, but seeing something is I walked into a party one time and it's a habit. I'm sure you have the same habit. Maybe you've broke it over the years is that you look at people's hands <laughs> without recognizing that you're looking at them. Like people, no, I don't do that anymore. <laughs> yeah, but I, I like I wouldn't even notice that I'm looking at them until something caught my attention. Then I realized, oh, I've been staring at this person's hands while they're talking to me. And I walk <laughs> into this party, and it was a little shady party. And this is, they're introducing me to someone, and I'm looking, and I'm looking, and I go, oh, there's the murderer's thumb. And so for the listeners, if you have the thumb has two phalanges, right? The, the first phalange has to do with your will of how much you want to affect your environment. And the second flange has to do with logic and reasoning, right? And, and uh, when the first flange is really big and the second flange is quite small or maybe not as big, then we call this, or they call this, William Benham called this the murderer's thumb because they'll do whatever they have to do to, to advance their objectives. Yeah, it looks like an apple on a stick. Yeah, and and I saw this, and I look at the guy, and my first thing was to run, and then I said, "Let me <laughs> let, let 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 me talk to him." And and so I start to interview him. Basically, I didn't tell him what I saw. I I didn't want to to alter anything. And he was a career criminal. He just got out of jail, and he was a friend of a, a friend of a friend. And and I told her after we left, I said, "Don't ever be alone with this guy. He's not a safe person. He's not a good person. You know, this is very dangerous." About a week or two later, I was at her house, and he comes walking up. 
And he comes and stands, you know, a foot away from me and is asking for her. And I'm looking in his eyes and he can't see me. His eyes were so dilated and so like, and not like drugs, but something. And I, he couldn't even recognize that he knew me. He wasn't really, he was talking at me. It was a very strange feeling. And it turned out a week later, he got arrested for murder. He came straight from committing that murder to her house. And you think about how your mind would be after you do that. And this is why his eyes were dilated and so out of uh, focus. And, and it was one of the most fascinating things. I mean, it's sad that this happened and everything, but it was so fascinating. What an extreme story. Yeah, I mean, and, and he had an interesting story, too, because he was born, when I was interviewing him the, the first time I met him, he was born as twins, and his twin died at birth. And he had twins with his girlfriend, and one of the twins died at birth. And I thought, wow, I, I need to, I was going to come back and get the fingerprints of all of them and look at their hands, but I never did, and, and great, I'm glad I didn't, but... It's incredible to see that and then to see it actually happen, not happen, but the day that he committed it, mm-hmm. I, I saw him an hour, two hours after or whatever it was. Right. So mm-hmm. Amarjeet. Yeah. Oh, excuse me. No, go ahead. Oh, so I've read for 50, 60 or so murderous thumb people. Mm-hmm. And, and since I've seen about 60,000 pair of hands, so I consider that about a one per thousand marking. Yeah. Uh, yeah, yeah. Unscientifically correlated that way. Uh, and I have unerringly found that to be an extremely positive sign in almost every pair of hands I've seen that in. What do you mean and by yes, positive? Well, I, I agree with the interpretation that the person will stop at nothing mm-hmm. to achieve their ends. But it depends on what their ends are. So I've seen that on uh, activists who will stop at nothing to make their point about climate change. Who will stop at nothing. Uh, to help the children, et cetera, like that. So when put to good use, it is the most obstinate, uh, I'll die doing it, nothing is going to stop me, shoot me three times, I'm still going to, you know, like John Wayne gets shot, he's still going to continue doing things. You can't stop him. And so, yes, there is that quality. And somewhere in Palmistry's distant past, there must have been a whole family of people who had that, that were murderers, and hence the title. And certainly on the hand of somebody with, you know, behavioral problems, let's just say, yeah. uh, you know, they'll stop at nothing to do their ends. But mostly I can, in, at my first guess when I see that is that the person has some super high ideal that's going to be almost impossible to get across to humanity. Mm-hmm. And it's going to take a person with such obstinacy to have any chance of making inroads in the world as it is today. So I start with that premise, and I'm willing to change my mind along the way. That's interesting. I I did have one other case where the guy was on the borderline of this murderer's thumb, and and he was someone who was working in the corporate world and just learned or just finished taking the teacher training course for yoga. And his big dilemma was, I'm enjoying the money, I'm enjoying the pursuit of this, but I want to do something good and do yoga. And I can see how this was, you know, he had, like you said, he had good intentions, but he was stuck in, I want to really make some money and I, I want, but yoga teachers are not making that money. And so <laughs> well, think about, Oh, think about this. So let's yeah. say that you have that type of thumb mm-hmm. and let's say you're five years old, six years old, 10 years old, whatever. And you find that you can learn to play piano better than your friends can because 
you know, you did it until four in the morning and they stopped at nine at night. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Because you have more willfulness. You find that you can draw the entire periodic table because I was talking about that earlier. Yeah. You can free draw that and your friends get bored before they, they, they even start. How does a 10 year old deploy that attribute? And what feedback loop does that 10 year old get from his or her teachers, parents, et cetera? And if you grew up in Brooklyn where I grew up and you had that attribute, you get beaten up by everybody, unless you were the strongest person around, and then you yeah. get shot. Yeah. You get beaten up. You'd have to shut up with that part of you if you intended to hang out on the street corner and survive. So a lot depends upon the environment that the murderer's thumb finds itself in and what the little child discovers as the little child starts walking through the world. And I can easily imagine an environment where the parents are completely supportive of the child being this way and give the child beautiful projects to be up to. Yeah. And the child gets support. If you're born in an so environment, if you're born in an environment, I don't think this guy was born in this type of environment. This, <laughs> this was the issue. Exactly. But and there are people who are broken also. There are people who, you've seen hands, there are people who are, their equipment is broken. Yeah. No wonder they're behaving badly. Their equipment is – it's like a car with three wheels. Yeah. You're going to have a hard time getting from here to there. Yeah, but there's something to be said about giving this information at least to the parents at a young age so they can create the environment to help the, this. Whenever Absolutely. I get a, a child – to me, this is great. If uh, I have a friend who their baby is born, I say, OK, bring it to me after about a month. I could read the fingerprints and then you can look at how this child is going to, to – interact with their environment, how you can make an environment that's conducive to their expression. You know, let's say you had a kid and innovation is the key theme that you find. Yeah. Okay. So doesn't this kid have to break the rules? Doesn't this kid have to rebel against what the teachers suggest is the only way that this is supposed to be done? And uh, two plus two equals four. Yes, but two over here and two over there equals four over here. If the kid is designed for innovation, you can't impose too much upon them and think that you're doing them a favor. Uh, they need to step outside their boxes. But the, the one thing that I do see a lot or almost all the time is that the, the thing that the people are the strongest in was something that they saw as weak at, at the beginning of their life. And, and my reasoning behind this, which is just anecdotal, is that it's because they have memories from past lives where they were very good at this quality. I'm thinking of one guy in particular. He's a great communicator. I heard him speaking and is incredible. And when I was reading his hands, I saw it and I was telling him this. He goes, hey, you know, my whole life I always thought it was very – I was a terrible communicator. And I go, well, this was what forced you to to focus on this is because maybe at some point – in your childhood, you remember that you had this quality and now you feel inept because you're not able to express yourself like you did in the past life. And so there's something to this friction or the struggle of looking at things as a deficit or as, as a, a, a hindrance to your expression to force mm -hmm. you to, to look at it. Yeah, obstacles as opportunities, a common theme in readings. Yeah, yeah. Apparently, we can compare notes all day, Amarjeet. Yeah, I just want to finish this up with a, a couple last things. One about your school. So you, the school you've, you've been doing since you said, what, 1985? Correct. Imagine that. And, and so this is, this is great. Has the, how have you seen the school uh, change? 
Well, there's a few things. We're in COVID era now. If somebody's yeah. listening to this 10 years from now, there was a COVID era. Yeah. And hopefully there's not a COVID era again 10 years from now. Uh, so that's changed things in a certain way. Um, there are uh, there are teachers of uh, hands the way you've uh, uh, read in life prints uh, in Europe and in North America. Not as many as I imagined there mm-hmm. could be uh, yeah. back in 1985. But there, we do have teachers, and they are teaching. But um, each one of them uh, is reporting to me a certain amount of uh, limitation. Uh, current circumstances are not ideal. Uh, there's somebody who's doing in-person classes uh, mm-hmm. in uh, Switzerland, uh, but most people aren't. I'm doing my classes online now. Okay. And, um, you know, we Zoom. Mm-hmm. Uh, I have a a beginner's class on Monday and an advanced class on Friday, which is fun for me. You know, I get to keep my thumb in the pie, as I like to say. And uh, I'm talking about hands to eager listeners. What could be more fun? Uh, But it's not the same as being there in person. And my students uh, have a limitation. Uh, It's not as easy to meet people. It's not as easy to grab a hand at a party. It's not as easy to invite people over for Friday afternoon. We're going to look at hands and, uh, you know, drink some espresso. When when things Uh, go back to normal, I mean, you have you have a one year program, a two year program. What what uh are you doing? Well, thanks for bringing me back to uh, the larger picture. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. So um, we have three years of study. Okay. Uh, that surprises people. To, I thought just Palmas made stuff up when they looked at people's hands. <laughs> no, <laughs> there's three years of study. Uh, they could, and there's an online version of this. And then there's in-person teachers in, you know, in Washington State, here in San Francisco, uh, on the East Coast, and in Switzerland. And if people want to find out, they can go to uh, the Institute website, handanalysis.net. Okay. Uh, um, also, uh, you had asked me in, in the emails prior, like, what, uh, what might I want to tell people about in mm-hmm. terms of the uh, business of hands? I'm legit. I'm just finishing a project that has been a lifelong project for me. I am doing the final edits, illustrations, the last little bits. I've been working 25 months uh, daily. Uh, on a book that is the follow-up to Life Prints. You read a book that was only about fingerprints. Right. I mean, you, can, you can't not mention thumbs and a heart line and a handshake, but there was no details about that. This is a 1,200-page book that is the outline of the year-long that people would take with me or the other teachers. And when I teach the year-long, you know, we meet uh, with, uh, 126 classroom hours, then we meet individually for tutoring, and there's homework to do, etc. But the workbooks that people have are merely an outline of the material. What yeah. comes out in class and what comes out about your own life and how you're wrestling with your own issues and how your life lesson has you your hair on fire or whatever, uh, that comes out individually. A book that's trying to accomplish this has to have it all explicitly written out in a form that is advanced enough that a psychotherapist uh, is not spoken down to, but easy enough that a high school student would have no trouble getting through the whole thing, including the exercises about exploring their own life lesson. This has been an exquisite challenge for me to get this completely written out. And I'm on the last 
edits and wow. illustrations of this. In the next 10 weeks, I'll have this book available for people. And oh, I can't wait. It's, <laughs> it is a replication as much as a book. There's two books, actually. There's the book and then there's the workbook that goes with it, the homework assignments, etc. And this is a replication of, is as close as I can get in an at-home study. COVID kind of pushes me in this direction. Yeah. It's as close as I can get to the experience of being in the class with a dozen other people who are exploring their life purpose and going on that same journey. So that's what I've been working on. And uh, how the school will progress in the, the future is really up in the air to me. I wonder if my teachers are going to come back to teaching hands as the pandemic disappears or will their life have changed so much that, you know, it slips through their fingers. Will I go yeah. back to teaching as much as I did for the last 50 years? I started teaching hands the instant I was doing it. I was teaching mm -hmm. hands in the snack bar at college. And do I want to go back to teaching that way? I'm not sure what's going to happen with the Institute. The Institute needs more teachers. And maybe this book will inspire some people to look at hands, to learn enough about their own life purpose like you have, to give their life purpose a chance to shine and to follow that star where it leads them. And hopefully that'll bring about more people who want to take this work and teach it to others. And for whatever reason, I was inspired before I knew next to anything really about hands. I always wanted to teach it to other people. That was in me also. And um, I'm hopeful towards the future that there are others who are so inspired. Well, it's great that you're putting this book out because I think it needs to be documented, all this this knowledge that you have, because it's it's incredible. I mean, just the I, I've scratched the surface of your teachings and, and learned a lot on my own of doing things. But what you have contributed, I, I think it needs to, to be documented uh, so people can really be exposed to this. Like I said, this belongs in, in psychiatry, and I think one day when they can develop the, the machine to do this, it will, but not until then because it, it, the, the people need to really have a science put behind this where they can use analysis through thousands of prints through a machine or something like this, but it needs to be based on what you have contributed you know, this knowledge that you've contributed, that you've cultivated over your lifetime. And it's been a real honor for me, I mean, to to speak to you, because this was something that when I started to do it, it just, it just I like you, like you, I would sit there and talk to people and show them how I saw this and what I saw and teach them. And, and I was coming from a business background, so I was able to speak to these people who have business backgrounds because they understand the way I speak. And... And, you know, my enthusiasm for it was incredible. Like I said, I, I the only reason I started getting paid for it is I thought this would stop people from bothering me and asking me to read them. <laughs> I went to a festival and I was teaching this. You know, I said, oh, I can teach a little bit about the hands. Mm -hmm. And I was so naive. I didn't think people would ask me for a reading. And they started asking me. So I said, okay, I'm going to put up a sign and say, you know, 25 euros and, and you have to pay. And then they'll stop bothering me. And then I started getting more. I said, okay, because it's something for me that is, is, is you know, very special. Like I said, it was about remembering a, a lot of things. And, and to mm -hmm. be able to talk to you, it was great for me. I really appreciate you spending your time and, and uh, you know, getting this word out. And uh, yeah, this book, I'm really looking forward to it. I, I think 
If anyone wants to see what he's already written, you can you can look at the Life Prints uh, book. I'll put links to it on the show notes and also to the school. It's on handanalysis.net. It's for the International Institute of Hand Analysis. And to get a consultation with Richard would probably be amazing if you can do it, if you're in Northern California. And I don't know if you're doing well, it over. All, all, no, all the readings are at a distance now. Uh, uh-huh. I send out a hand printing kit. They take their prints. They email them to me. We do the reading on the phone, Skype, whatever. Okay, you can do that. And uh, I really, I think it would be valuable for you to do this. It's a great, and, and thank you for coming on today. If you ever want to come and talk about more, I, I'd be happy to do this. And uh, when you have your book out, let me know. I'll, I'll, I'll talk about this as well. Thank you, Richard. Thank you, Amarjeet. And uh, your story moves me as well. I'm really uh, glad to hear your story. I'm moved uh, to hear about it. And uh, we do belong to the same tribe. And it's good to meet a fellow tribes member. Oh, thank you. Thank you. I'd like to tell you about Sing Flutes. These are flutes that are made by me. They're handcrafted Native American-style flutes designed for sound healing. The flutes are tuned to the frequency of 432 hertz, the harmonic intonation of nature. The fundamental note of each flute is in a key to vibrate a particular chakra. Whether you are playing for others or yourself, listening to 432 hertz music resonates inside the body. In fact, they did a medical study where they hooked people up to a brain and heart monitor and played different instruments to them. The Native American-style flute had the most impact in relaxing them. If you're a yoga teacher, it's a great instrument to incorporate into your classes. What I do is I have an app on my iPad that has the sounds of nature, and I'll put on the sounds of rain and play over this to the students at the end of the class. It's a very intuitive instrument to play. There's no musical knowledge necessary to get started. Each flute is unique since they're handmade. I put different artwork on them. I put mantras on them related to the chakras that they're tuned to. So go check them out at singflutes.com, S-I-N-G-H-F-L-U-T-E-S.com. Use the discount code, the story of me podcast and get 10% off. Thank you for joining me today. I hope you enjoyed the show as much as I did. It was a real treat to speak with Richard Unger. I want to thank him again for coming on the podcast and sharing his experience and knowledge with us. If you'd like to get into contact with him, you can go to the International Institute of Hand Analysis website, which is handanalysis.net. You can go to Amazon to find his book, Life Prints, Deciphering Your Life Purpose from Your Fingerprints. And his new book is not out yet. Hopefully, when it comes out, we'll have him back on the show to give us an overview of the book. If not, I will let you know. Please continue to support the podcast by rating, reviewing, and sharing it with a friend. This really helps me get the word out there and expands the reach of the podcast so I can bring more guests onto the show. And you can also help support the podcast with a donation. Go to thestoryofmepodcast.com, and at the bottom of the website, there's a donate button. Make a, a donation to help cover the expenses associated with the podcast. 
It'd be greatly appreciated. You can also go to the website to submit questions for the show or give me some feedback of people you'd like to see on the show or anything you'd like to to get into contact with me for. Until the next time, from the podcast that awakens your inner power through awareness and understanding, allow love to be the current that carries your words and actions. Why?